to Behind the Rind, the story and science of cheese. I'm your host, Claire. First off, I should probably tell you a little bit about myself. I'm a cheesemonger, which means I cut, share, wrap, sell, and nerd out about cheese all day at Venissimo in San Diego. Venissimo is a family of artisanal cheese shops that seek to share the glory and goodness of cheese without being pretentious. In this podcast, we'll explore classically complex aspects of cheese through the lens of history and science, all while hopefully not boring you to death. Cheese fascinates me, not simply because it's so delicious, but because of the balance between story and science. It's a food that dates back thousands of years, but so much of what we know about cheese is tradition. It's story and hearsay. Hast thou noticed, Barnaby, that soggy and salt-starved cheeses are wont to spoil and mold? So many of our cheesemaking practices center on lore that's produced tasty results and was passed down just because it didn't kill our ancestors. You might not know this, but we live in a Renaissance era where modern science is exploding with research about what is happening on a microbiological level inside your favorite cheeses. This podcast will take all that fascinating history and the complex current research and wrap it up in this adorably short and entertaining pod. For today, we're going to lay the groundwork for our podcasts to come by discussing the confusing variety of cheese that exists and the categories many can be placed into. The goal is to create a shared language, so we're on the same page. It's a common occurrence. A customer walks in. Hi, welcome in. We say hi, and they mumble a greeting. We look around to see what has them so preoccupied and they're staring at the cheese case like it's either going to eat them or we've asked them to do complex calculus in their head. As cheese consultant and author Liz Thorpe puts it, Everybody has the same reaction when they hear what I do, which is they say, I love cheese, but I never know what to get and it's so overwhelming. As a cheesemonger, my goal is to help customers find cheeses they're going to like. What makes that so hard is that there are so many different cheeses that vary in so many different ways. So how do we come up with a system to make sense of all this variation? Honestly, the answer is that there is no perfect system. So if you're new to cheese, relax. It's not like there's some secret that everybody else knows, but you don't. In this episode, we're going to look at three perspectives of classifying cheese. The traditional systems the chemical and microbiological approach used by cheesemakers, and a pragmatic system geared towards cheese newbies. Liz tells us a little bit more about the traditional systems of categorization. Historically, cheese people have categorized cheese by country, um, which I think 20 years ago was probably a really helpful way of categorizing it. But of course, especially now, every country is making every style of cheese. Categorizing by country, I think, is limiting. And similarly, categorizing by milk type is limiting and also really not helpful to a consumer. Most people don't know that cheese is made of sheep milk or goat milk. So country and milk type I, I found to be really limiting. And then the other way that we approach it as a an industry is to talk about it by its sort of technical classification and how it's made. So to describe something as a bloomy rind or to say it's cheddared or to say it's cooked pressed. But if you're a consumer, you don't know and probably you don't really care. Um, you just want to find something you're going to like. Liz is right. It's like if you went to buy a car and the dealer was like, this car was made with union labor of four-ply steel in Tennessee. And you were like, okay, but does it go fast? 
because that's what I care about. We've historically classified cheeses by how, where, and what they were made with, which isn't super helpful to the average consumer in predicting how a cheese will taste. There are some helpful shortcuts, though. For example, the Swiss are known for Alpine cheeses, the Brits for their cloth-bound cheddars, and the Southern Italians for pecorinos. Likewise, cow, goat, and sheep's milk all have distinctive flavors, kind of like different types of meat. Cow's milk is the most malleable. Think of how you can put chicken in any dish. Goat's milk tends to have a distinctly, well, goaty flavor, (laughs) and sheep's milk often carries a unique gaminess and spiciness. There are a few styles of cheese that share a common make procedure. For example, when I refer to alpines, I'm talking about cheeses with a cooked and pressed curd. This means that after the milk is coagulated and separates into curds and whey, you strain the curds out and then heat them back up again and press them. The aim is to get as much liquid out of the cheese as possible. This style was developed in a tough topographical landscape. The Alps. Where... During the summer, herds were taken to enjoy the grass in the high alpine meadows, often as high as 7,000 feet. Just imagine the logistical nightmare of hiking down a 7,000-foot mountain every day to sell milk in the town below. So the alpine styles of cheese that emerged were made to be like the energy bars of their days, squeeze as much nutrition into as compact a package as possible. Hence, alpine-style cheeses are cooked and pressed curd cheeses, which made them very durable and more efficient to transport. My favorites in this category are classics like Gruyere and the newer renditions like Schneebelhorn. Another common yet often misunderstood style is Gouda. A true Gouda should have a slightly sweet flavor. Forget that weird round log that was smoked that you find in the grocery stores. This slightly sweet flavor comes from rinsing the curds in water, which effectively reduces the lactic acid by getting rid of the lactose, which would eventually get turned into lactic acid as it's eaten up by bacteria. Gouda's originated in the Netherlands. Beamster XO or Midnight Moon are some slam dunk ones to try. An even more ambiguous style is cheddar. A cheddar is simply a cheese that's gone through the, quote, cheddaring process, where the curds are salted, kneaded, stacked on top of each other, and repeated. Cheddars are often high in lactic acid, which helps give it that classic sharp flavor we know and love. Try an old-school English-style cloth-bound cheddar and notice how the flavor changes the closer you get to the rind. Washed rind cheeses have to be my favorite, though. Speculation is that European monks fasting from meat for religious reasons realized that they could simulate a meaty umami flavor out of cheese if they washed it regularly in a salt brine, beer, or liquor. This regular washing promotes a telltale sticky orange rind and the beautiful aroma of stinky socks. What? Don't judge. Those are just a few of the main styles that get thrown around when discussing the historical approach to categorizing cheeses. But for cheesemaker Matteo Keeler from Jasper Hill Farms in Vermont, categorizing cheese is serious science. When I think about cheese... I primarily think about chemistry and microbiology. Um, Obviously, moisture drives both those things. Mm -hmm. As a cheesemaker, Matteo is interested in the chemical processes that create variation in cheese, and there are two factors that provide a window into that world. The things that I look at are texture. Mm -hmm. So is it got a short or a long texture? Mm -hmm. And... uh, Next would be, uh, what's, what's the rind microflora? For Matteo, the texture of a cheese is determined by its mineral content, mostly how much calcium is present. 
For example, in a short textured cheese like fresh chev or halloumi, neither of these cheeses are very elastic, and both of them are very low in calcium. In contrast, a long textured cheese like an alpine gruyere or comté is extremely elastic and much higher in calcium. As Matteo says, If you had a slice, you could practically tie it in a bow, hmm. right? Okay, but why does it matter how much calcium a cheese has or what the texture is like? So you can reverse engineer a cheese if you understand the chemistry, wow. right? So, uh, and that's why, uh, from a category perspective, um, I I'm looking primarily at what the mineralization of the cheese looks like. So this is really cool, Matteo. How do cheeses end up with different calcium contents anyway? So the uh, the minerals that are responsible for coagulation mm-hmm. are calcium and phosphate. Okay. So when you add rennet mm-hmm. uh, to milk, uh, what what's happening is this enzyme is clipping uh, amino acids and the kappa casein uh, proteins mm-hmm. between the 105th and 106th molecule in the chain, right? Yeah. That causes the proteins to shed an ion and reverse their polarity, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, the first thing that happens is uh, when when the casein uh, micelles shed uh, mm-hmm. an ion, they attract a phosphate molecule, and that phosphate molecule att- attracts a calcium molecule, and it's the calcium that actually binds proteins together. Okay, wait, 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 wait. I'm sorry. We're not quite there yet, Matteo. This is our first episode, and I don't want to scare folks. Let me translate. So when you make cheese, you add bacteria called starter cultures that start eating up the lactose and farting out lactic acid, lowering the pH of the milk. Lactic acid tends to have the same effect on calcium molecules as fame does on boy bands. They dissolve. Depending on where that and when in your process that acidification and that solubilization of calcium is taking place, you're going to end up with different textural quality in your cheese. Yeah. So, Two main stages of cheese making where the curd can become acidified are one, in the vats or wet media, or two, in the forms, once the liquid whey has been drained from the cheese. If the curd has a lot of lactic acid production in the vats, then when the whey is drained off, a lot of that dissolved calcium is going to leave with it, down the drain. But if acidification takes place later on, Once the cheese has been shaped and no longer wet, then the calcium is kind of locked in. TLDL, too long, didn't listen. Short textured cheeses aren't elastic because they don't have much calcium, while long textured cheeses are more elastic because they retain more calcium. And the amount of calcium in a cheese mostly depends on where in the cheese-making process the cheese became acidified. Next time you're enjoying a cheese plate, try to guess which cheeses have shorter texture and which have longer texture. The other factor Matteo mentions is rind microflora, or the tiny bacteria, fungi, yeasts, and molds that make up the rinds of cheese. Good news, this category is easier because you can see it. Bloomy rind, you know, Mm. it's a natural rind. Does it have a rind at all? Uh, And washed rind cheese. If you think of cheeses as existing on a linear spectrum of age, starting with the youngest cheeses on the left, and then the super-aged cheeses on the right, you could start with fresh cheese, mozzarellas, feta, queso fresco, that have no rind. Next in line are the soft-ripened, bloomy-rinded cheeses. 
Think of brie's, they dominate this category. Then next comes soft wash rind cheeses, gooey and stinky orange rinded cheeses like Limburger. After that, unless the rind has a wax on it, we refer to it as a quote, natural rinded cheese. Everything from cheddar to Parmesan. It's the unique microflora that cheesemakers encourage the growth of that produce those distinctly different results on the rinds of all of those cheeses. For example, the predominant molds present on most bloomy rinded cheeses are Penicillum candidum, which gives Brie's their signature white fluffy rinds. And on those stinky washed rind cheeses, Brevibacterium linens, or bee linens, usually takes all the credit because it's the same bacteria you have on your feet and that's a striking visual. But Benjamin Wolf's lab at Tufts University have discovered that other bacteria like Fusarium domesticum and Rhodosporidium, that's right, Rhodosporidium, on many wash rinds, giving them their orange and rosy hue. At Jasper Hill Farms, they have seven state-of-the-art aging vaults with five unique environments, all designed to selectively pressure the good microorganism growth. Temperature, humidity, and air exchange, or like oxygen, provide selective pressure, which can steer the rind community, the, micro, the microbial ecology, in a specific direction. Wait, selective pressure? Is this a term the mafia uses while they're cracking their knuckles? Um, selective pressure. It's an e- ecology term, selective pressure. So in, um, in, in a cheese-aging environment, mm-hmm. we're using selective pressures to um, uh, select for the microorganisms that we want to see growing on, um, on, on a cheese. Okay. This concept is super fascinating, but we don't have time for this now. Stay tuned for an upcoming episode on selective pressure. So far, we've covered traditional systems of categorizing cheese and the really sciencey approach. And now, what if you've made it this long and you're still confused? Oh boy, have we got a system for you. So the idea of the gateway cheeses actually came out of my experience as a cheesemonger. Um, I started in 2002 working behind the counter at Murray's Cheese in New York City. Um, and what I learned how to do was help people navigate the case, asking them what they liked or what they didn't like. And what I found was that they could say, I like really sharp cheddar, um, Brie is good, but I don't like the rind. I hate blue. There were like a few simple reference points and pretty much everybody had them. And so that's how I started to sell cheese. I would say, oh, okay, well, if you like brie, you're going to like this other thing because it's buttery and creamy. And those are characteristics that you probably enjoy in brie. And it gave us a common language and it gave us something concrete to refer to. Liz calls her new approach to categorizing cheeses gateway cheeses. For her, there are nine gateway cheeses, mozzarella, brie, Havarti, Taleggio, Manchego, cheddar, Swiss, Parmesan, and blue, to which the entire world of cheeses can be mapped. The idea is that she starts with a cheese almost everyone knows, like brie, and by grouping common flavors in this category into three levels, approachable, intermediate, and intense, you can easily dial up and down the intensity and find cheeses of different styles with similar flavor profiles that help you think of what else you might enjoy eating. Think of it as Pandora for your cheese. 
This concrete language and pragmatic approach underscores much of Liz's career, which by many could be called the democratization of cheese, or cheese for the people. Her book offers a paradigm shift from purely taxonomic to practical, and it's fascinating. Check out Liz's book, The Book of Cheese, on sale now to learn more. Just to recap, Today we learned that there is no perfect system for classifying cheese, so don't feel overwhelmed when you see a case full of cheese. Just ask your monger for help. We also learned about three different ways to categorize cheese, the way it's traditionally been done, a method focused on microbiology and chemistry, and a brand new pragmatic approach. And why is categorizing cheese so difficult, you ask? My theory, cheesemaking has historically been a method of preserving excess milk that a farmer's family could not drink or sell in time. While now it's a fancy luxury good, it's rooted in the pragmatic need of the moment. As people who enjoy cheese as a luxury, we're the Johnny-come-latelys in this cheese world, and maybe we're forcing our Excel spreadsheet and cost-benefit analysis personalities on farmers who simply needed to be thrifty. Categorizing cheese just depends on your perspective and your end goal, be that cheesemaker or cheese enthusiast. I'd like to thank my guests, Liz Thorpe and Matteo Keeler, as well as Pat Pulowski and Benjamin Wolf for the series Education and Science They're Contributing to the Cheese World. You can check out their work at cheesescience.org and microbialfoods.org, respectively. For a complete list of the links and resources referenced in today's podcast, and to get more info about Liz's new book, and to check out some of the beautiful cheeses Matteo makes at Jasper Hill Farms, go to behindtherine.com. And thank you for tuning in. Tune in next month for more stories and science from behind the rind.